Kinesis. Practical Wisdom with Scott Allen. Hello, I am Scott Allen, and thanks to my daughter Kate for developing the intro to the Practical Wisdom for Leaders podcast, where we offer a smart, fast-paced discussion on all things leadership. My guests help us explore timely topics and incorporate practical tips to help you make a difference in how you lead and live. If you haven't done so, please click subscribe so you automatically, seamlessly stay in the know when we publish new episodes. Likewise, please provide me with feedback. What do you like? What do you dislike? And what else would you like to know? And now, today's show. Everybody, today I have Barbara Crosby. Dr. Barbara Crosby, she's an associate professor emerita at the Hubert H. Humphrey School of Public Affairs, and she's the former academic co-director of the Center for Integrative Leadership at the University of Minnesota. Now, I have not spoken with a fellow Golden Gopher for some time, so I am so excited today, Barbara. You have served on the editorial board of the leading journals, Leadership Quarterly. You've ex- published extensively. And I'm, I'm really looking forward to exploring with you this whole area of public leadership, because I don't know that it's something I've ever really uh, had any in-depth conversation on. Now, I know that, I don't know if you grew up in the South, but you attended undergrad in, in Nashville. So I was just saying to you before we started, I imagine the switch to the Twin Cities was a cold one. <laughs> yes. Well, I count my years here in winters. Uh, (laughs) uh, So my move to the upper Midwest was uh, in the early to mid-70s, and um, I came up here to go to grad school at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. And uh, I had grown up, I'm a native of Charleston, South Carolina. I grew up in Georgia. I uh, went to college in Tennessee. I worked in Maryland for a while and then migrated. Um, and at that stage of my life, I really didn't believe that people lived west of Chicago. So, uh, <laughs> I'm north of either, right? <laughs> that's right. So anyway, I had a really good experience at the University of Wisconsin. Um, and when uh, my husband was finishing up his Ph.D., um, we accepted uh, the offer to come to the Twin Cities. We had certainly visited Minneapolis, St. Paul, and they are, uh, despite being frozen in place right now, uh, wonderful cities. Oh, uh, Minnesota's a great, a great state. Um, you said you grew up here? I did. I did. I grew up in Edina, so uh-huh. just about 40 minutes away from from campus. And so I... I Graduated high school in 91 and then mm-hmm. immediately moved on to the U. Had a wonderful four years. Great experience there and absolutely loved it. Oh, so I'm glad to hear that. That's home. <laughs> but there weren't leadership. I mean, the, the infrastructure, especially everywhere, but at the U right now, whether it's the leadership minor and the student affairs, kind of the robust programming out of student affairs, it didn't exist. It well, didn't you're exist that I knew of. What year were you there? 91 to 95? Yeah. Well, we had uh, the beginnings, uh, Mm. certainly, at that stage. I got involved back in the mid-80s, around 86 or so. Okay. Um, Humphrey School of Public Affairs was founded in 77. That's We came uh, right at that time. 
And uh, the first dean, Harlan Cleveland, thought, if we're going to have a school that's interested in preparing people for careers in public service, leadership ought to get some attention. So I got involved in helping uh, design the Leadership in Public Policy Seminar at that point that ran for nine months. We had um, just some great people who enrolled in that, not necessarily for credit. Some, A few people took it for credit. We had another seminar running called uh, Ethics and Social Policy, I think it was, and there was a big overlap between the two. So yeah. our start of leadership, specifically leadership work at the Humphrey School was really for mid-career people um, who were interested in in improving their public service. And Harlan used to say our role was to take busy people and slow them down and participate in our reflective leadership program. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's wonderful. So, at, and at this time, I mean, what? Burns is just about to publish Leadership, right? It hasn't yet been published, or it's just been well, seventy-eight. Published. Yeah, seventy-eight. Yeah, and and then Bass is beginning to kind of operationalize some of the transformational mm-hmm. leadership theory. Yeah. So at the time, you're still kind of looking at Ohio State, Michigan, some of the Fred Fiedler, and some of that literature, correct? That was a prominent, I suppose, the other kind of strain, because we are in public affairs, you know, we would be looking towards uh, people who did presidential leadership. Um, Certainly, we pulled some of the CEO, uh, you know, a lot of it's popular kind of stuff in the sense that it's based mainly on storytelling. Um, But it was exciting, actually, to try to put together a program around leadership at that stage because uh, Burns was just uh, formulating his ideas, and they really appealed to us because he was one of the few who had, you know, a look at the public side of leadership and also saw it as something different from power-wielding. So, you know, a lot of the leadership literature then and now still says mainly what leadership is is influence yeah. or or you know the use of power one way or another and i was fascinated by questions about what is power but did not see it as equivalent to leadership anyway yeah. we we invited burns to come ron heifetz kind of got in the game in in that era. Yeah. Uh, Barbara Kellerman, you know, it was early days and it was really terrific fun uh, to try to figure out what were kind of competing theories of leadership uh, beyond influence and also to kind of get our own frameworks developed. So Leadership for the Common Good, which is what John Bryson and I have uh, written about, that came out of that work. Uh, Bob Terry, who was the director of the Reflective Leadership Program at that point, wrote a, a book uh, called Authentic Leadership, uh, which is a phrase, you know, that's become incredibly popular in our yeah. field. Uh, but at the time, nobody else really was thinking about what authenticity might mean in connection with leadership. So that was kind of the beginning of our work. And then we looked around the campus. I mean, as you know, University of these big research universities are, in, oh, are just full of people doing fascinating work. And there were other people that were doing some leadership either overtly or, or ex- implicitly, you know. And so 
we gathered people from uh, the School of Agriculture who were doing stuff related yep. to food supply and things like that. We worked with people from the Extension Service uh, because they were doing community leadership. You know, over the years, family practice, uh, family medicine at the School of Medicine, the nursing school, public health has is now one of the big partners in the Center for Integrative Leadership. We worked with people who helped um, develop faculty leadership in central administration. So we kept kind of convening these circles of like-minded people and trying to uh, help people keep from it reinventing the wheel every time they figured they needed a leadership development program. So, again, you know, that's what led eventually to the Center for Integrative Leadership in part. We also yeah. uh, had a strong relationship with the Carlson School of Management. Good. Uh, one of the funders of that, uh, Marilyn Carlson Nelson, um, really was interested in building stronger ties across business, government, nonprofit, community. And we said, we can help with that. And so uh, we got yeah. the Center for Integrative Leadership underway. Well, Barb, what's interesting, as you were, as you were speaking, I was thinking about my undergrad. I was in College of Human Ecology at the time, uh -huh. family social science. So w people say, oh, gosh, you come out of like family, family stuff, you know, and it was kind of this space between sociology and pure psych and this small system. And my family had my parents had been through a divorce and I was very interested in, well, how does a, you know, a, a healthy family, quote unquote, exist. Yeah. yeah. But even as we explored family systems theory, I mean, there's direct applications to teams, yeah. small groups, right? Yes. I mean, so it's so much yeah. fun. It's so yeah. much fun. Yes. Well, can you share, are there some nuances that people should know about when it comes to this topic of public leadership? I mean, obviously the context and the setting, but what other, what other nuances or streams would you want people to be aware of? Well, there's certainly a lot. Uh, however, I would start with one point, which is, in my opinion, public leadership is a redundancy. Because I think, depending on how you define public, leadership is relational. I think you would agree. Yep. And there's always then more than one person involved. There is a small public, if you will. However, none of us get involved in leadership work in a complete vacuum. And I think about, you know, these concentric circles. And so if we think about just a dietal relationship, okay, uh, that's one center of the circle, if you will. Uh, then we move out to group, then to organizational, to community, to country, to the world. Um, Maybe Galactic. the universe <laughs> these days. The uh, I haven't done much work there, but anyway, um, <laughs> that's that. I'm more in the tradition of Dewey, say, who says publics are uh, convened around shared concerns or shared mm. problems. And so, you know, if you and I have a problem that we're working on, we're our little public. Uh, yeah. Although I think it is helpful to realize that. It, different uh, requirements at these different levels. But um, I think one of the shortcomings of the traditional team and organizational leadership literature and research is has been to ignore uh, what's outside the boundaries of the team or the organization. So in that sense, um, I'm talking about public 
in this more generic way, not equivalent to government. Um, And a lot of my work, and especially the Center for Integrative Leadership, has been to say, you know, business has public aspects to it. Uh, Government, if you want to use this word private, has some private aspects to it. In other words, protection of personal data and that kind of thing. And we want that. You know, nonprofits have a public aspect or a public responsibility. So so that's the first point that, that I might make around this. The other, it, kind of along with what I've already said, uh, would be that the framework Leadership for the Common Good that John and I developed has that same kind of progression. Yeah. You mentioned the context. We say there are two starting places, leadership in context and personal leadership. You know, we're using adjectives because it denotes different levels. And so the context where leadership in context involves really uh, identifying ecological, economic, political, sociological, technological trends and developments that might open opportunities for leadership. But if you ignore the things that are, let's say, existing, if you ignore history, you know, with all of our issues around racial reconciliation right now, a lot of that's wrapped up in ignoring history. You know, you can't start to lead around racial justice unless you do some some attention to context, I think. So leadership in context, you know, where what is influencing the present from the past? What does that mean about what's possible for the future? And then personal leadership, you know, what have I what do I care about? Uh, assessing what I bring in the way of assets and blind spots and so forth that might help me in my leadership work and in my followership work. Because, again, another point I would always make is that, you know, nobody leads all the time. Most yeah. of us need to be engaged followers most yes. of the time. I think, you know, having a sense of what it takes to be a good, engaged follower is a helpful part of leadership too. So leadership in context, personal leadership, understanding oneself, and then understanding others. I think you've done a good bit on emotional intelligence. So, you know, that's a a key element of leadership skill at that level. And then after that, thinking about leadership in groups and teams? How do you build effective teams? From there, moving on to nurturing effective and humane organizations. From there, moving to visionary leadership, which I place at that higher, more community level where you're uh, thinking about um, what kind of compelling vision might we need to work toward that's beyond our little team, our, our organization or whatever. Then political leadership, which relates to actually getting policy decisions made and implemented. And then what we call ethical leadership, which would surprise some because it's not about personal ethics. It's about uh, fostering these institutions that help uh, sanction conduct, enforce and reinforce norms, and so on. And then finally, this work of policy entrepreneurship, where you're employing these different aspects of leadership over the course of a policy change cycle. And so I might back up to say that what got us started on this work years ago was an interest in public issues, particularly tough ones. And now, of course, we name things like I mentioned racial justice, climate change, pandemic, you know, 
global issues around sustainability and poverty and so forth, or, you know, smaller versions of this. Here, I've done a good bit of work on homelessness and you know, you can take different chunks. You can say veteran homelessness. You can say youth homelessness. You can say, you know, take different communities like uh, we have a large Native American community here, as you know. Mm-hmm. That's the the framework in brief. And there is a, a sense with that that you're starting with what you might call public problems um, yeah. and trying to help people think about how do you take your part of it? How do you widen the circle enough to have impact um, and achieve some beneficial outcomes. So Barb, what's a, what's a case study that comes to mind for you where, you know, fixed is a, is a (laughs) challenging word. Yeah. Yeah, (laughs) it certainly is. Where where maybe some of the needle has been moved that, that might exemplify what you just, what you just suggested. Well, there's a lot of good, despite everything that, that's happening, right? Whether yes. we're frozen or whether it's COVID-19, you know, some of the statistics, if you believe Steven Pinker, some of the statistics around the world, there's several things that are improving, right? That have improved. Yeah. Well, you can pick a whole lot of them. One I've used often that can, you know, can appeal across the world is the effort to uh, combat polio. It is a great example because you can kind of come into it at different places in terms of leadership. I have often focused on the work of Rotary International. And there are particular players in the history of Rotary who, I don't know if you know much about Rotary, but it's a professional, you know, it used to be a men's professional group. Mm -hmm. And so you would have a lot of doctors and lawyers and others um, who were at a certain level of education and accomplishment, I guess. And they were international to begin with. And there are chapters all around the world. And so that offered, once uh, some physicians got activated to try to say, look, this is a global problem. We know we have a solution. And often with problems, you don't have the solution. But in this case, they had a vaccine, but they didn't have the rest of the solution for countries that were impoverished. So they began to work with their chapters in India and other parts of the world to say, what do we need to make this work where you are? And and the great thing there was that, you know, their counterparts in other countries were also well-educated, but they knew their context. And so the upshot of this was that Rotary was able to draw on those chapters around the world, but also those chapters were then able to recruit of people who could give the vaccine, people who could carry vaccine, people who figured out how to deal with the, I think it had to be refrigerated, but at any rate, the technical sides of how do yeah. you deal with an environment where you can't take for granted the kinds of sanitation or refrigeration that you have uh, in the U.S., say. And then they also... This is over decades, too, correct? uh, Yes. So it began... Transcending multiple, quote-unquote, formal positional leaders in the organization. Right. And, you know, going through processes in the organization about how, you know, what did they emphasize? What were they going to use their resources for, etc.? They then somewhere along the line began to cooperate with WHO. So that tapped them into a lot of other resources. And then there, there's, uh, you know, the Gates folks have um, 
pitched in also on yeah. worldwide vaccination. So you could have told this as a leadership story, starting with the Gates Foundation. You could tell it as a leadership story, starting with WHO. You could tell it, as I do, uh, starting with Rotary, because I think it's a fascinating and kind of accessible uh, story of nonprofit leaders who, you know, individuals made a huge difference. An yeah. organization made a huge difference. And and the ability to adapt to different contexts. Yeah. I'd never thought of that. I mean, I've heard of it, right? I've heard of Rotary. I've probably even been to a meeting or two. There's some, but I didn't want to go every week at 7 a.m. or whatever. The I know. <laughs> yes. It felt a little rigid, right? Yes. <laughs> but but it's, it is. It's a, it's a really, really interesting case study because of everything you just said. Well, and I have a, a very contemporary one to offer, too, and, sure. and, and that is the recent example we had of thousands of poll workers, election judges, public officials who had done the work to make our, our presidential congressional election safe, secure, in the midst of a pandemic. Yeah. And, you know, that didn't just happen overnight. These people, there had been leadership and committed followership going on all around the country. And actually at Humphrey, we have a program that's around helping election administrators prepare and do a good job. And, you know, we can talk about the need to maybe do better, sure. but the leadership and committed followership of those individuals, it's a stunning current example, I think, I, I'd like to hold them up as heroes. Yes. Yes. Well, and there was intense scrutiny everywhere. Yes. And generally speaking, everywhere, it, uh, it didn't hold up, that, that it was determined, whether that was Georgia or Arizona, that, uh, you know, these, these were fair elections that occurred. Right. right? And I mean, what's uh, interesting to me is that Always when I do my case study research, you know, there's so much more to stories, you know, that goes back, as you said earlier, years often of preparation and learning. And so, you know, a lot of people had learned from some big time failures uh, two years ago, earlier, where machines didn't work or whatever. And so, you know, we've we've gotten a lot better as a country about being sure that if we're going to use new technology, we have some way of backing it up or checking it or whatever. So Barbara, I'm gonna go I'm gonna go super contemporary on us. And well <laughs> your last example was super contemporary. Yeah. So I'm yeah. gonna continue on the Okay. So as you look at as you look at COVID nineteen and everything mm -hmm. that's kind of swirling on around us. Yeah. And you have you have President Biden. Yeah. Who is working to influence the public to uh, get the vaccination, socially distance, wear masks. Of course, we're not going to have. I, I I think you know Brad Jackson, yeah. Maybe because of ILA. Yes. A fascinating conversation with him a couple episodes back, and he said, you know, it was wonderful to be in New Zealand and to kind of watch. And well, not all five million. Of course, you had your ten yeah. percent that maybe weren't. Right. But generally speaking, we were kind of all rowing in one direction with yes. a common vision. Yes. Of what to do. So as you think, uh, let's let's kind of place you into the White House. In, <laughs> I, apparently, there's a lot of fires that are happening in the Oval Office right now, according to my, the reports I've been writing. You know, just not not fires figuratively. He's got yeah. a fire going. So yes. you, you sit down and you're talking with President Biden. What do you say to him? How does he influence? Because that's that has very real ramifications for how long we're in this. Correct. Yeah. 
Well, I would first of all say thank you for taking this pandemic seriously. Mm. Um, you know, in our field now, people pay a lot of attention to collective leadership, and I, I've been a part of that. It doesn't mean, though, that that the actions and messages from somebody with a great deal of responsibility and power don't count. Mm -hmm. And it counts a great deal. And I fully believe that not to negate the efforts of people who organize campaigns and so forth, but I believe Joe Biden is president because he took the pandemic seriously as Mm -hmm. he spoke to us. The, the, The meaning that is conveyed to us about what is this? Hmm. Is it something serious? Is it something we can do something about? You know, that's the the most effective visionaries. And, you know, Joe Biden doesn't have a reputation that's high, super high on charisma and, and vision, let's say. However, he does some of the important things of visionary leadership, which is to say, here's where we're at. Um, here's why we're at this point, and here's something we can do to get to a better future. And what yeah. is that better future like? Well, I think we're struggling a little bit to figure out, uh, is that better future some kind of uh, idealized version of what we used to be, <laughs> or yeah. is it something that's that's a bit different? Um, we're really struggling about that, I think, in the country. But I would say to Joe Biden, you don't have to settle that for us. Your message for us still needs to be, you get it. Death of, you know, 500,000 people is something to mourn. And it's something to make, you know, some benefit from. In other words, we, we will commit ourselves to doing, having a better public health infrastructure. And I think, again, I would support continuing the efforts to make sure people have health care. New Zealand uh, benefited from having a very different kind of health care system than we have. And mm-hmm. um, we we fight here over different ideas about rights and responsibilities and so forth. You know, we've got to work some with the system we have. But I think I would say, Mr. President, you absolutely need to keep on the path of being sure people have health care coverage and being sure that the people who've been least advantaged in our system get covered. And I've been encouraged by the effort with vaccination to be sure that some portion of that is allocated. You know, right now I'm watching all of my friends out there uh, running around trying to get their vaccines. Well, not everybody can do it. So or has I would a computer in their home and the oh, Wi-Fi connection and yeah right so so I would say keep it up give us hope but also keep the realism going you yeah. know we've got to have that and then the other thing that I think you know everybody who does any leadership work would say is delegate wisely you know uh, choose those people who are going to be in charge of working on the campaign to get vaccines out and reliable and distributed well um, and listen to them, learn from the mistakes. There will be mistakes, own up to those. And he's good at that. You know, I think he's pretty good at owning up, you know, uh, do the cheerleading as well. You know, keep on going to those vaccinations places and uh, having your photo ops (laughs) because we need to see you. 
And we need to hear from you in this difficult time. It's going to be so fascinating to watch it all um, kind of unfold between before our eyes, whether that's any number of different topics that are kind of in the in the uh, system right now. Whether to your point, some of the racial racial justice, uh, I think you know, middle class jobs, automation, digitization, uh, how that's going to play out. I mean, I think there's just a there's a a wonderful opportunity to reinvent ourselves. To your point, what normal? You phrased it beautifully <laughs> when we were talking before. What, what well, a new abnormal? Yeah, yeah, for sure. <laughs> Can I call the episode that our new abnormal? Yeah, go ahead. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Listeners heard that, so that's why I'm calling it that. Yeah, but it's going to be really interesting to watch it play out. Yeah. Well, and each one of us has our our part or parts to play. And, you know, we keep trying to make sense of, of what's going on individually. What should we do? How should we behave? Um, it is a time that really demands uh, acting on our sense of responsibility to other people. And, you you mm-hmm. know, we've seen some great examples. We've seen others who've, I don't know, cracked under the strain or, you know, sometimes, again, you know, this role of people who have positions of responsibility of helping us see that if we are caring for each other, we can get out of this in a better, in better shape. I mean, I don't know that there's much you can do for people who just say, well, you know, there's some higher power who makes it all happen. Yeah. There's not much you can do about that. But uh, most of us, I think, listen to, uh, influential people who can say to us, whether it's our family members or somebody in positions of power or, a, you know, a basketball star saying, look, this is time limited for sure. Uh, it's yeah. not as quick as we'd like it. But if we care for each other, we'll all be better off as a result here. And yep. uh, and just keep that going and celebrate the people who are doing this. You know, our newspapers here are full of the food shelf folks and the people who've, you know, figured out a way to visit people who are isolated. Uh, you know, there's a lot of creativity going on, as you were saying. Uh, from, oh, yeah. Uh, there's drive-by Mardi Gras now, right? <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure that has a great future. but <laughs> my, my, my girls the other night, they had a virtual sleepover. So... Barb, it was hilarious. <laughs> they they basically had laptops and iPads out, and so they were hanging out together with their friends until about eleven thirty. And and you know, of course, they fell asleep. And there's all this technology all around them in the room. <laughs> <laughs> and they woke up at eight oh. and got back on with their friends. Oh, of and course. you know, but but yeah, the creativity is really really interesting. I, and so you had sent me an email, and in that email, there was an article. Uh, Journal of Lutheran Ethics. <laughs> now, of course, growing up in Minnesota, uh, you know, the, the Lutheran Scandinavian kind of influence, there's just a little bit more of kind of a collective mindset, yeah. or at least historically there yes. have been. Have yeah. you seen that through this experience? Have you seen that people are are thinking, at least some of my experience has been that it's tough for some folks to think past their own nose. And they don't kind of get yet that wearing a mask, for instance, it protects others. Yeah. And we should protect others. Yeah. Have, have you been impressed? Have you been 
kind of benign? Have you been disappointed? <laughs> what have you seen? Uh, well, I think you're right. First of all, I should just say that I don't often publish in Lutheran publications. <laughs> you know, I'm originally a Southern Baptist and uh, backslidden a good I bit from that. From that. Yes. <laughs> but definitely have, well, I should just say the title of that article was about Job and leadership, right? And so yeah. I, early in the pandemic, turned to the Hebrew Bible, uh, the yeah. chapter on of Job, the story of Job. I turned to the book of Job in uh, the Hebrew Bible because I thought it would be quite applicable in the time of pandemic. As you may remember, Job is greatly afflicted, but he's been a very successful businessman, landowner, farmer, and is, you know, today people would be interviewing him to give them lessons, my top 10 lessons uh, as a leader in the land of us. And yeah. But suddenly he loses it all. And the reason is that Satan has, has in a way, tempted God in a kind of a wager to say, well, you know, this man honors you, but what if he didn't have all this? Mm. What if he lost everything? Would he still honor God So, and be an upright man? So anyway, Satan goes to work and really devastates the, the business. And after that, God allows him to go ahead and, and afflict his family. And Job is just left there with nothing, suffering in the ashes. But anyway, he rises up and he says, I'm going to get God to explain himself because mm. I don't get it. I've been a great person here and everybody respects me. And and I demand for God to tell me what what caused this and so anyway this goes on and his friends show up and they initially are kind of sympathetic and then they say you must have done something wrong <laughs> so so but joe persists well anyway god finally speaks to him and says basically you know you're not so important after all and maybe you hmm. should have paid attention to the great wonders of the world and anyway it can kind of give you that feeling of you know, no matter how well off you are, maybe you ought to pay more attention to your stakeholders, which mm. is a key leadership attribute. But And I work on that a little bit. And also to the natural world, because what the message from God is that we human beings are kind of uh, small potatoes, <laughs> yeah. that the forces of the world are magnificent and we ignore them at our peril. So at any rate, that's what that was all about. I thought there were some great leadership lessons uh, for us in the time of pandemic. Oh, for sure, for <laughs> sure. And have you been impressed with Minnesotans and their response? What have, or has it been kind of across the board, or what do you think? I think Minnesotans, I, I think you're right. There is some cultural influence of the Scandinavian heritage here, but there are many other heritages here. So you could course, say, yeah. you know, we have Native American communities that were here before yep. any of these other European strains that came. Yep. Um, yep. And they have... And newer, like the Somali and the Hmong. And, yes. Yeah. So incredibly multicultural. Um, and to some extent, that's becoming true of rural Minnesota as well. Um, you know, it's, it's just too easy to say that uh, all the, you know, the kind of liberal communal types are here in the... Twin Cities and everybody else is off in the smaller communities, and that's not true. You know, now we have mm -hmm. communities around Minnesota that uh, 
in some parts, some reasons, because of the jobs that are available, now have big, rather substantial Hispanic or um, or Somali. Um, mm -hmm. We've had a lot of people from Tibet who've come. You know, it's across the board. So yes, we have these communal traditions. I would say. Uh, certainly in the Twin Cities, you know, we've got a governor who's had influence of saying, look, folks, we just need to do this. It's temporary. We, yeah. If we can, you know, go out there and chop down trees in the forest, we can wear masks. <laughs> I've been thinking we, we need these T-shirts that say it's masculine. To, <laughs> to wear. So anyway, I think the, the cultural heritages here count. I think there is a Scandinavian influence that you don't see so much in a lot of the rest of the country. Uh, mm -hmm. That's about kind of hardiness and collective responsibility and so on. So, yeah, it, it varies, though, across the state. You know, yep. you can go yep. some places where, you know, people have bought the message that it's kind of weak to <laughs> to show up with mask. It conveys that you're too wimpy against COVID. It's not masculine. It's not masculine. <laughs> right. <laughs> now we have competing titles for this episode. <laughs> masculine. <laughs> or the new abnormal. Yeah, right. <laughs> Barb, I am I'm so thankful for your time today. We'll wind down. And I always ask guests at the end what they're reading or streaming or listening to or mm. just consuming. It yeah. could have to do with leadership, yep. but it doesn't have to. Ah, well, I always can see some leadership uh, connection in just about anything that I look at. Me too. Um, I think like many people, I've been trying to deepen uh, my understanding of the relevance of some of the uh, leaders uh, and thinkers uh, from previous years uh, for now. So hmm. a book that I and others in my circle read recently is called Begin Again by Eddie Gloud. And what he is doing is investigating what James Baldwin has to say for us now. I think the disappointing thing about reading James Baldwin these days is that so much of it is still so relevant. Gloud's book has been something I thought was really valuable for now. There is um, another book that, uh, well, two books that I read this fall that I thought I really recommend The Soul of America by John Meacham, uh, who okay. helps us think, you know, we're in, we've had some tumultuous times lately, uh, but the history of the U.S. is full of conflict moments where you wonder if the republic's going to hold, um, it, you know, real reminder that it's up to all of us. You know, that's why I kind of link citizenship and leadership so strongly. You know, we can get involved in a particular policy issue, but how important it is to also be a part of sustaining our democratic institutions. So Meacham, Doris Kearns Goodwin's Leadership in Turbulent Times, really, really mm. good, focusing on four different presidents. And, you know, who've, who've got their flaws. Every I think, you know, one of our efforts in leadership ought to be to remind everybody that every everybody in a position of authority and power has flaws as well as strengths. And yeah. as citizens, we got to hold them accountable. I would, I would kind of translate that to humans. Yeah, right. <laughs> um, so anyway, PBS NewsHour, that's... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, uh, those are... And uh, another book that I thought about, it's, it's called My Grandmother's Hands. It's kind of an unusual book. It's by a therapist 
uh, named Resma Mehmet uh, Menachem, sorry, and he he reminds us that our difficulties relating across racial boundaries uh, to some extent are about how our bodies behave, what our emotions are, and that you know if we are to be come better at this experiment of being a, a multicultural country, uh, we need to also recognize how deeply embedded uh, some of these um, kind of resistances are or uh, fears and insecurities yeah. and all of this. And so anyway, those are some. Barb, I'm so happy that we had this time together, and, I, and I'm so thankful for you giving your time and for the work that you have done. I will make sure to highlight a number of, of the publications that you've written in the show notes, and I'm going I'm to kind of let you sit on pins and needles as to what this is going to be called, this conversation. <laughs> well, I've enjoyed it very much. And really appreciate you so doing the podcast. <laughs> well, thank you so much and have a wonderful day. You too. Bye. Okay. Bye-bye. I think the practical wisdom in my conversation with Dr. Crosby is that leadership is multi-level. And she spoke of this reality that there's multiple levels to this conversation, that it's integrative. And she shared how they went across the university within the community to integrate thinking around leadership. And of course, you may have noticed that I had a pretty big conceptual block about being from Minnesota and Scandinavia. And of course, she reminded me that it's multicultural, that we have Somalis, the Hmong, the Scandinavians, the Native Americans that are all building that culture, and that it's not just of one. So, I hope you enjoyed the conversation, and I think multi-level, integrative, multicultural, that's what makes it so complex, but it's also what makes it so rich as an opportunity for exploration. Have a great day, everybody. Thanks for listening in. You have been listening to the Practical Wisdom for Leaders podcast. If you liked what you heard, please share it with others and let them know what we're up to. And one last quick reminder to click subscribe so you know when we publish new episodes. And of course, we'd love to hear your feedback. You can stay in touch with me by visiting www.scottjallen.net or any number of social media platforms. Be well, be safe, and make a difference wherever you are on this beautiful planet. And now, here's Kate's twin sister, Emily, with the outro. You've been listening to Phronesis, Practical Wisdom with Scott Allen.